If you have your Bible with you, and I certainly hope that you do, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, we are kind of off and on doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Titus. And as we pick up in our study through this book, we come uh, this morning to Titus chapter 2. My goal today will be to try to uh, cover verses 1 through 8. And the title of the message this morning is Men and Women Matching Sound Doctrine. Men and Women Matching Sound Doctrine. You know, there's a lot of painful things that have come about as a result of our present crisis with the coronavirus, but there are some good things that have resulted as well. And one of those good things is that uh, people are searching for answers to their deepest questions uh, with an urgency that makes some of them ripe for the gospel. A Christian publisher recently revealed that sales of their Bibles are right now 62% higher than they were at this time last year. Think about that. I mean, a lot of businesses are hurting and sales are in the cellar, but Bible sales are soaring right now because people are searching for the truth, and many of them are giving the Bible a closer look. Uh, I believe Timothy Keller is right when he says that in the months and the years to come, we're going to hear many people testify and say, I came to Christ during the virus. I think that's true. And that leaves us with an amazing opportunity that we want as Christians in the church to make the most of. And there are two things that we need to do, I think, to make the most of this opportunity. In fact, I would say there are two things that the world especially needs from us right now as Christians. Number one, they need for us to believe and proclaim the truth of God's word. And number two, they need for us to live lives that match up with the truth that we believe. We as Christians don't get the luxury of choosing between these two things. We must choose both with equal passion and faithfulness. And that's actually what our passage today is all about, teaching us how to live as Christians in a way that matches up with gospel doctrine, with the aim of showing forth the beauty of the gospel before the eyes of a watching world and bringing honor to the Bible that we believe in. In fact, notice how Paul sets the stage uh, for this, how he sets this up at the beginning of Titus chapter 2. In chapter 1, Paul has told Titus to appoint elders who exhort in sound doctrine And we saw that that word translated uh, sound uh, is the Greek word that we get our English word hygiene from. He's talking about hygienic doctrine, doctrine that is wholesome, that is sound and health-giving. So Paul has told Titus to appoint elders who exhort in sound doctrine, but then having delivered that call in chapter 1, Paul begins our text today by saying to Titus these words in Titus chapter 2, verse 1. He says, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Notice that word fitting in the text that Paul uses here. Paul is not in this verse telling Titus to speak sound doctrine. He assumes that Titus is already doing that. Paul is, in this verse, calling upon Titus to speak things that are fitting for sound doctrine. In other words, he wants Titus to speak to the members of the church on the island of Crete things which match up nicely and beautifully with sound doctrine. And when you look at what follows in the verses of this chapter, you see that what Paul means by this is that he wants Titus 
to teach his congregation how to live in a way that matches with the sound doctrine that they believe. As one writer says about this chapter, and I quote, this chapter addresses not so much the content of sound doctrine as it does the character and the conduct which jives with such truth. And if you're wondering what kind of character and conduct in men and women jives with such truth, our passage today will make that very clear. In Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, Paul is going to look at uh, what we're going to consider as three different groups in the church and explain what kind of character and behavior for them matches with sound gospel doctrine. Ultimately, these three groups are older men, that's group number one, and then group number two is older and younger women, which we're going to treat as one group lumped together because Paul seems to do that. And then the third group is young men. And Paul makes his purpose through the full length of verses 1 through 10, actually, uh, very clear. In fact, notice the four so that's in our text today. If you look at verses 1 through 10, Paul says in verses 3 and 4 that older women are to be a certain way. And then look what he says in verse 4, so that they may encourage the young women to live in a certain way, verse 5, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. In verse 8, he tells young men to behave in a certain way so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And then in verses 9 and 10, which we will not be able to study this morning, Paul tells bond slaves in the church to behave in a certain way so that, he says in verse 10, they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. So Paul starts this passage with the idea of Titus speaking things that are fitting for sound doctrine in verse 1, and he ends with the anticipated outcome that Christians behaving in the way Paul identifies in these verses in a way that matches with this sound doctrine, will thereby adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. In other words, if the Christians on the island of Crete, and if we also live in the way that Paul prescribes in this text, our actions will match beautifully with sound doctrine and thereby adorn that doctrine in a way that radiates and shows forth its beauty before the eyes of a watching world. And that's what we want, right? That's what brings glory and honor to God. Now, we're not going to have time to look at verses 9 and 10 today. We're just going to look at verses 1 through 8. And ultimately, we're going to observe three presentations of how Christians should live in a way that matches sound doctrine. Three presentations of how Christians should live in a way that matches with sound doctrine. And the first of these presentations is how older men should match sound doctrine. How older men should match sound doctrine. Listen to what Paul says in verse 2 of Titus chapter 2. He says, older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Now notice that expression at the beginning of the verse, older men. This is a translation of the Greek word presbutos, and it was used to speak of a man who was advanced in years, uh, maybe approaching uh, the age of 60 years of age, uh, but there was really no set year when a man officially became qualified to be described as an older man. All we know of here in this text is that the older men Paul is speaking of here are older than the younger men whom he speaks about later 
in verse 6. So I'll leave it to you to figure out whether you qualify for the status of older man or not. Um, as for me, I have help in knowing how to categorize myself and it's members of my family that help me to know. Not too long ago, my son Benjamin was looking at a picture of me from about 20 years ago and he then looked up from the picture at me and said, Dad, what happened to you? Clearly, I look much more aged now than I did in the picture he was looking at. So that tells me that I am an older man. Also, my wife helps me with this. A few years ago, she looked at me as I was sitting on the couch in our living room. And she then said to me, I'm starting to get an idea of what you're going to look like as an older man. I was sorely tempted to return the compliment, but I didn't. But what she said gave me clear indication that yes, I am an older man. And what is said in this passage applies very much to me. As we look at this text and see what Paul expects of us, uh, we need to first of all appreciate the fact that Paul seems to highly value older men in the church. He doesn't put older men on the bench and tell them that they are too old to be useful to anyone. Not at all. In Paul's theology, older men evidently very much have a role to play in the life of the church. In fact, they are the leadoff batters in this lineup that we see here in Titus 2. And Paul is wanting older men to step up to the plate and to exhibit the qualities that he identifies in this passage because the impact of these qualities will have in setting the tone for everyone else in the body of Christ. First of all, in this passage, Paul says that older men should be temperate, which literally means holding no wine. And if you go by the literal etymology of this term, this, speaks, this word speaks of someone who has no wine in their system intoxicating them. But this word was also used to speak more broadly of someone who is in control of themselves rather than being under the control of anger or lust or being carried away with ungodly excesses of passion. It's a self-controlled individual who can be counted on to behave in the right way. Paul also says that older men are to be dignified which seems to be best expressed through our English word respect. To be dignified in the sense that Paul is speaking of here means to behave in a way that shows respect to others, uh, to live in a way that shows respect for realities that ought to be respected, like the realities of a holy God the realities of life and death and heaven and hell and the value of a person's soul. And it also means to behave in a way that is worthy of respect from others. Older men are to be givers of respect to other people rather than going around and demanding everyone respect them. They should be givers of respect to others and should live in a way that earns respect from others toward them. That's what it means to be dignified. Paul also says that older men must be sensible. This is a big word in the book of Titus. When we saw this word in chapter one, I pointed out how one ancient Greek writer viewed this quality as the mother of all other virtues. Paul himself clearly loves the Greek word that is used here because it shows up five times in this chapter alone in one form or another. This word that is translated sensible speaks of someone who is wise-minded. They study God's word and they meditate upon God's word and they store up the wisdom of God's word in their minds and 
they then allow themselves to be governed by that wisdom rather than being governed by their impulses or by the whims of the culture around them. Paul also says that an older man must be sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. Again, the Greek word translated sound here is the word we get our English word hygiene from. And Paul is saying that he wants older men to be sound in faith, love, and perseverance. Paul wants older men to be men who have good spiritual hygiene. And we're told here that they must be healthy in three things. First of all, that they must be healthy in faith. In other words, an older Christian man is to be a model of health when it comes to faith in God, faith in Christ, faith in the truth of the gospel, and um, he lives out his faith in a faithful way. He's a model of health in the way that he manifests and lives out his faith in Christ. Such a man is to be a man who nourishes his faith through the careful study of God's word so that his faith is healthy and strong. An older man, Paul says, must also be sound or hygienic in love, meaning that he's healthy in his experience of God's love for him through Christ, his confidence in God's love, and in his contentment to abide in God's love rather than being a man who's going outside of God's love for forbidden pleasures. Such a man is to be healthy in his love for God in return. He is to be healthy in the love that he shows towards his wife and towards his children and in his love that he shows towards his brothers and sisters in the church and in his love towards all people everywhere whom he crosses paths with. And he excels in expressing love in meaningful ways that brings blessing to the people in his life. Paul also says that older men are to be sound in perseverance. In other words, they're to be healthy in their ability to endure and remain under trials and not lose faith and fall apart. They should be men who remain under a noble task and bring that noble task to its completion rather than giving up halfway through. When such a man is discipling someone and experiences a setback, he doesn't give up on that person and lose hope in them, but he perseveres in ministering to that person. When such a man experiences spiritual defeat in his own life, he doesn't lose hope for himself, but he repents and keeps pressing on towards spiritual maturity. When experiencing hurts in relationships, such a man perseveres in loving those who have hurt him, and he doesn't give up on those relationships. Paul wants older men like this in the church, men who are sound in faith, sound in love, and sound in perseverance. All of the things that Paul is listing here represent what men, older men, are to be. If their character and their life is to beautifully match with sound doctrine. And I want to point out again that Paul begins his instructions here with older men because I believe Paul knows the vital role that older men play in setting the tone for the rest of the church body. Paul knows that if older men in the church are being what he describes here, then these older men will blaze the trail and make everyone else's path an easier one to walk. Everyone will flourish in a church populated by older men who exhibit these qualities in their life. I'm so thankful as I studied this passage for the older men whom God has given to us here at Cornerstone over the years. I think of men like Cornerstone's first pastor, Jim Brown, who 
met with me each week and discipled me during my first couple years as a pastor here. I think of men like Ron Needham and Ed Lindsay and Vernon Anderson and Bob Bell and others who once served on Cornerstone's Elder Board in our earlier days. And then I also think of countless faithful older brothers who are now among us who lead all of us through their example, the example that they set and the words they speak, the wisdom that they deliver to others as they, through their example and words, represent Christ and the gospel to all of us. God has been so good to Cornerstone to give us godly older men, and our church is what it is because of them. And may God give us more of such older men. And may he help us as a church to be a church that produces the kind of godly older men that Paul describes in our text today. Well, there's a second presentation that we find in this passage of how Christians should behave in a way that matches with sound gospel doctrine. And this brings us to the second point it's worded this way, how older and younger women should match sound doctrine. How older and younger women should match sound doctrine. Now, in a way, this clearly is two groups, older women and younger women, but Paul treats them uh, together. So we're going to treat older and younger women as one grouping as we work through the text Listen to what Paul says in verses 3 through 5. He says, beginning in verse 3, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women. And I'll stop right there. Now, we don't know exactly how old these older women are that Paul is referring to here, but some writers suggest that we should think of these older women as being past childbearing age, and I think that's, that's a fair read of Paul's intent. How should such women behave in a way that matches beautifully with sound doctrine? Well, Paul says a number of things. Uh, first of all, he says that such women are to be reverent and their behavior. The word that is translated reverent here is a fascinating choice of words for Paul. This word is often translated temple or priest in the New Testament. And here Paul is telling older women quite literally to be priest-like in their behavior. And a word like this serves as a beautiful affirmation of the truth that the priesthood of all believers in the New Testament includes women. But what Paul is saying here means even more than that. Paul is saying that older women, as one writer says, are to carry into daily life the demeanor of priestesses in a temple. In other words, older women are not to compartmentalize life, but see each and every part of their day as holy to the Lord and to see every activity as sacred, which means when an older woman, an older Christian woman is standing in line at the grocery store or sitting in her car on the freeway or working at a job or cooking in her home or even changing a grandbaby's diaper, such a woman is to view every task as sacred to God. An older woman living this way is to view every place she finds herself as a sacred place, a sacred spot where she has the opportunity to represent God to others and where she has the opportunity to represent others before God in prayer. At the total opposite extreme, Paul then goes on to say that older women in the church are not to be malicious gossips. 
This Greek word that is translated malicious gossips is the word diabolos, from which we get our English word devil. One commentator understands Paul as saying that older women are not to be she-devils. To be a she-devil, as Paul is using the expression here, is to engage in slander and gossip, which is why the New American Standard translation translates this as malicious gossips, and that's something that women of God absolutely should not be. I am personally no expert on demon possession, but in the last two years, our elders have found ourselves a handful of times in a room with a demon-possessed person. And one of the things that I've noticed about demons in my limited experience is that they are quick to accuse And some of the accusations they utter are directed at us as we're trying to help the person who is possessed. Accusation is what demons do. It's what the devil does. And whenever a Christian gossips and accuses another person falsely, he or she is putting on the devil's jersey and acting like a member of the devil's team. And Paul here is telling us that older women in the church are not to do that. According to the New Testament, there's already a devil who accuses the brethren, and God doesn't want any Christian woman in the church imitating the devil and his ways. So Paul is telling older women, I want you to be reverent in your behavior. I want you to live like a sacred priestess representing God to others. And I also don't want you to be she-devils either. Paul goes on to say that older women are not to be enslaved to much wine. In other words, an older woman is not to allow wine to be her master. She should never let herself be drunk with wine, nor should she let herself become addicted to wine. Such an enslavement to wine would be most unbecoming of a woman of God who claims to be a slave of Jesus Christ. And it would clash terribly with the sound doctrine that she claims to believe. It would also set a horrible example for younger men and younger women in the church who will likely follow her example to an even greater extreme than she ever went in her abuse of wine. Paul says an older woman of God should have nothing to do with being enslaved to wine. Paul also says that older women are to be teachers, teaching what is good. This expression that we see in the text here is actually one word in the Greek. Older women are to be teachers of good. They are to be good teachers, and what they teach is to be good things. They are to teach truth, which is a good thing. They are to teach good behavior. They are to teach good deeds that are rendered for the benefit of others. And this teaching that older women are to engage in may be done by some older women while standing in front of other women in a classroom But as one writer says, the kind of teaching that Paul envisions here is instruction that is passed on through both life example and intentional words as an older woman is doing life together with younger women in the church. Now, why should older women be the way that Paul is describing here in this text? Who benefits? Well, everyone benefits, but observe what Paul says in verses 4 and 5. Paul says that he wants older women to be the way he just described so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. 
The word that is translated encourage here is actually the same Greek word that is translated sensible and sensibly elsewhere in Titus, only it appears as a verb here. It literally means to put sense into someone or to render someone sensible. Literally, Paul is saying that older women should live a certain way that he has identified so that they, the older women, may make the young women sensible to, and then he goes on to identify what they are to make younger women sensible to do. Observe what God wants older women to help younger women to do in this passage. First of all, to love their husbands as the pattern of their lives. The implication here, ladies, is that loving your husband all the time as the consistent pattern of your life is not something that comes naturally. It's something that you need to be trained to do, to be given the sense to do the way God wants you to do it. And an older woman can be a real help to you here. Every young woman Every young married woman finds herself at times married to a man who isn't very lovable. And she finds herself asking the question, how do I love my husband when he does such and such? And every young wife needs older women in her life to whom she can bring that kind of question and receive practical and biblical answers. And the role of older women is not simply to teach younger women to love their husbands, but to actually show younger women how to do that, obviously by their example, but even through the words that they speak to a younger woman, showing a younger woman and explaining to her how to be a blessing to her husband, how to show love to her husband in moments when her husband is not seemingly deserving of such love, showing love to her husband when her husband is in sin and should be confronted with loving confrontation. A younger woman who is married needs help in knowing not only how to love her husband, but how to express that love in ways that are most profitable and needful in any given moment, and an older woman can help a younger wife with this. In addition to that, older women are also to teach the younger women to love their children. Every mom loves her children, but every mom also finds herself at times seeing her children behaving in ways that makes them hard to love in that particular moment and hard to know the right way to love the child in a given moment. How best to love the child in a given moment. This is something that a young woman must learn. And it's something that Paul wants her to learn with the help of older women in the church. Older women are to teach younger women to love their children to love them when they're not lovable. They're to teach younger women how to love their children rightly in a way that leads to their children's growth and character. I mean, it's easy for a young mom to love her child, but then to wrongly show that love, for example, by refusing to discipline the child or by giving in to the child's every demand. Such a woman may in those moments think she's loving her child, but she's actually raising a spoiled brat who's going to have a miserable life because she's fostering selfishness in the child unwittingly. Such a woman needs an older woman in her life who helps her with these issues and helps her to love her children in ways that are most effective in bringing her children to spiritual and godly maturity. We're also told in verse five that older women are to encourage the younger women to be sensible, 
which is interesting because the Greek word translated encourage and sensible are the same word. In fact, a literal translation would be that older women are to make sensible the young women to be sensible. Paul must really want young women to be sensible. And he wants older women to help them with this. Teaching the younger women how to download God's wisdom into their minds from the word of God and then to allow themselves to be governed by that wisdom in all of their ways as they relate to their husband and their children. Older women also, according to Paul, must teach the younger women to be pure, which speaks of being chaste and modest and sexually pure prior to marriage and during their married life, pure of heart and soul and body. Older women are also to teach the younger women to be workers at home. Literally, this expression means, uh, means home workers. In other words, younger women are to be taught to do their homework, tending to the affairs of their household, managing the home, and tending to the needs of their husband and children, and all matters essential for the smooth operation of the household. This is a high and a holy calling for women to make their home a happening place for God's kingdom, a happening place for Christ, a place of blessing, a place where Christ is glorified, and a place where others experience the hospitality and the love of Jesus Christ himself. And where does a young mom who has been saved out of paganism, learn to do these things on the island of Crete? Well, she should listen to Titus's preaching, but she should also learn how to do these kinds of things from older women in the church who can show her how by their example and by their instruction. Also, we see in the text here that older women are to teach younger women to be kind, which speaks of being useful and benevolent, doing good and beneficial things to their husbands and children and other people, even in the face of provocations when maybe a woman's patience is wearing thin. A younger woman can learn how to do this from older women who have walked that path in the busyness of young family life, these older women have a perspective for how fast the time goes and they can remind the young women to cherish the countless opportunities that they now have in abundance to do good to their husband and to do good to their children before the children grow up and fly the coop and the opportunity is gone. Also, older women are to teach the younger women regarding the matter of being subject to their own husbands, teaching them what it means to arrange themselves underneath the authority of their husband in the home, teaching them what submission in marriage means and what it does not mean. Biblical submission goes against the grain of what comes naturally to any woman but with the encouragement and the guidance of older Christian women, a younger woman can learn to do this and learn how to wield enormous gospel influence over her husband in the process. Godly older women have learned the ins and outs of submission from the teaching of scripture, and they've had opportunity to practice submission in the trenches of real life experience over many years. And so they can teach younger women how to take the full weight of their gifts and their abilities and to use them under the management of their husband and for the good of their husband and family in the home. All in all, we learn in these verses both what older women are to be like and what younger women are to be like if they 
want to live a life that matches beautifully with sound doctrine. But we also learn something else here that I think is very much worth pointing out. It's not actually stated in the text, but it is clearly implied. And that is this. Let's word it this way. We learn in these verses of the insufficiency of the ministry of male pastors and elders. That just screams from these verses. A young woman who is married and has children, for example, can have the perfect male pastors and elders who are perfectly teaching her how to live. Yet Paul would say that such teaching from such men is not sufficient for this woman. A younger woman also, according to Paul, needs the voice of older women in her life teaching her these things also. I emphasize this truth because I want all of you older women in the church to feel the honor of the calling that God is giving you here in this text. You have a vital role to play in training the younger women in a way that a male pastor could never achieve. If I could, I would give to each of you older Christian women a coffee mug that says, my pastor's ministry is insufficient without me. And I can say that because we learned that here in this passage. And let me give you this encouragement as well. If you are an older Christian woman, please don't think that you have to be some kind of gifted teacher or super saint to do this kind of teaching of younger women. Just make yourself available to younger women and befriend as many of them as you can. Be there to pray with younger women uh, and to pray for them and to try to answer their questions in a way that is shaped by experience. When talking to a younger woman, tell her the lessons that you have learned and are learning from the Bible. Be honest with her about things that you wish that you would have done differently when you were younger. Tell her the lessons that you've learned the easy way and the hard way. Pour yourself into her and one day she will rise up and thank you. And you'll likely be surprised to hear how much your input into her life actually meant to her. Some of you will recall our Thanksgiving service last November. In that service, a younger woman came up to the microphone and in her testimony, she shared at length about how much an older woman in our church had impacted her life during the times that they had spent together. And afterwards, I was talking to this older woman who said to me, I had no idea that I meant that much to her. She was wonderfully, pleasantly blessed and surprised to know of the difference she made in this younger woman's life. So please, older women, don't underestimate what a gift you are to the church and the difference that you can make in a younger woman's life. If you are a younger Christian woman, then look for an older woman that you can befriend and learn from. Be a blessing to her in any way that you can and glean as much wisdom from her as you can. You will be made all the wiser for doing that and she will be blessed by your friendship as well. I'm actually so thankful for all the younger women and older women who do this very thing here at Cornerstone in our care groups and in our women's Bible studies and our women's discipleship program. And our church is an exceedingly richer church because of such women. Now, looking back at our text, why should the older women be living this way and teaching the young women to do the things that are listed here? At the end of verse 5, Paul says these words. He says, so that 
the word of God will not be dishonored. And that word translated dishonored is the Greek word blasphemeo. It's the word we get our English word blaspheme from. The word of God spoken of here is the gospel and the holy scriptures that present that gospel to us. And Paul is clearly not wanting the word of God to be blasphemed on account of older and younger women who behave the opposite of what is being described in these verses. Paul wants the word of God to be honored instead. Paul's wording here shows us the power that women possess for evil or for good. Women can behave in ways that cause the word of God to be blasphemed, or they can behave in a way that causes the word of God to be honored and received. And Paul is showing women how they can bring about an outcome in which the word of God can be honored through the lives that they lead. The stakes are so high, ladies. The reputation of God's word is actually on the line. Live as Paul explains in these verses so that the word of God will be honored by those whose lives are touched by your life and by those who are watching you. So, so far in our passage today, we've seen what Paul would expect from older men and what he would expect from older and younger women. But there's a third presentation that we find in this passage of how Christians should behave in a way that matches beautifully with sound doctrine. Let's word it this way. Point number three, how younger men, including Titus, should match sound doctrine. You know, some people nowadays are dismissive of the older generation, thinking that they have nothing to contribute. And then others go to the other extreme and they're dismissive of the younger generation, thinking that they have nothing to contribute. Paul is guilty of neither of these errors. He has told Titus what the older men and women must be, but he has also told Titus, what younger women must be. And now here he tells Titus what the younger men must be, making younger men third in the batting order that we see here in this text. Observe what Paul tells Titus to do in verse 6. He says, Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. There's that word sensible again which again means to be wise-minded. Paul wants young men to work at downloading the wisdom of God's word into their minds and then allowing themselves to be governed by that wise thinking rather than by foolish thinking and selfish thinking or worldly thinking. Paul wants young men to be governed by the wisdom of God's word rather than by their youthful impulses and pride, and he wants Titus to urge the young men to be sensible in this way. He wants Titus to come alongside of these young men and to help them and to challenge them and to plead with them to be this way and to call them to be sensible. Now, at, at first glance, as we're working through the text and we come to the end of verse 6, it, it seems like what we have here in verse 6 is Paul's only guidance regarding young men for Titus to urge the younger men to be sensible. And then it seems that Paul changes categories in verses 7 and 8 and begins addressing Titus as a pastor and tells Titus what he must be as a pastor. And we may be left scratching our heads and thinking, seriously, is that all Paul had to say to young men? After all the instructions he gives to the older women and the younger women, the only thing he has to say to young men is be sensible. Well, I don't think this is what Paul is doing at all here. Keep in mind that Titus is a younger man. That's the category that Titus 
fit into, which means that in verses 7 and 8, Paul is now speaking to Titus as a representative of the younger men in the church. Evidently, Paul doesn't just want Titus to urge younger men to be the way he's going to describe here. He wants Titus to exemplify for the younger men what they need to be. And so he's telling Titus in verses 7 and 8 how to live as an example for the other young men to follow. So what is it that Titus should be as an example to the other young men in the church on the island of Crete? Well, Paul says in verse 7, in all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Well, let's work through that list. Titus is to be in all things an example of good deeds. Titus and the other young men in the church are not to live for themselves, nor are they to fill up their days with silliness and evil, but they are to invest their energies in doing good and beneficial things for their wife and for their children and for others in the church and in their communities. As younger men, they should not walk around expecting to be served, but they should serve and seek to do good to others. In all things, Paul says, in every arena of life, as young men, they are to show what a life of serving others through good deeds looks like. Paul also says that Titus and other young men like him are to behave with purity in doctrine or teaching. They are to apply themselves to the study of God's word so that they can learn good doctrine. And they are then to hold to that good doctrine and not allow it to be corrupted by anything that is false or extraneous and not from God. Titus and his fellow young men are also, Paul says, to be dignified. And again, this is the same quality that Paul expressed that he wanted to see in older men earlier in this chapter. And here he is saying that he wants to see this quality in young men as well. A dignified person is someone who lives a life of respect, giving respect to others, showing respect for spiritual realities that ought to be taken seriously, and he lives in a way that is worthy of respect from others. It's easy for a younger man to demand respect from his wife or for a single young man to demand respect from his parents. But rather than trying to disciple everyone else and how to properly respect him, a young man ought to be putting his energies into showing respect to others and behaving in a way that shows himself worthy of respect from others. Above all, a young man should, in living a life of respect, should have respect for God's word, respect for Jesus Christ as the sovereign Lord of the universe, and he should live his life accordingly. That's what it means for a young man to be dignified. Paul also says that Titus and other young men are to be sound in speech which literally, again, means hygienic in speech. The speech that Paul is talking about here refers to the words that Titus and other young men speak in every aspect of life. The words that they speak to their wives, the words they speak to their kids, the words that they speak to their fellow Christians, the words that they speak to the lost, the words they speak in the workplace and in their neighborhood and even on the freeway. The words that we as men speak should be words that are wholesome words, health-giving words that literally impart health 
and wholeness rather than imparting sickness to others. We should not speak words that belittle and demean, but words that build up, words that edify. And when we as men fail in some way, the most hygienic words that we could speak are, are words of confession and repentance and apology. We men should be speaking wholesome words to our family and to others, and there are no more healthy words on the planet than God's very words that are recorded in his word. We as men are never more eloquent than when we are speaking or even just reading the words of God to those that God has called us to lead. Beyond that, in verse 8, Paul says that Titus and young men are to set an example of being beyond reproach. And that entails them, as he says here, being sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. In other words, their speech is godly speech that leaves them open to no legitimate accusation and they engage in behavior that matches up with their speech as they live lives that are beyond reproach as well. Clearly, in the mind of Paul, one's years of youth are not the time to be careless and to sow one's wild oats, but to live a life that is above reproach with a clear conscience. Now, why should Titus and young men seek to manifest all of these qualities that Paul identifies here. Well, Paul says, listen to what he says, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. The expression that is translated opponent here literally speaks of someone who is outside the church and looking for every opportunity to slander the church, and they're looking for any reason they can find, any excuse to slander the church, to slander Jesus Christ, and to slander God's word. And Paul is telling Titus that if he and his fellow young men in the church behave in a godly manner, like he has described here, then it will leave such an opponent with no legitimate accusation to utter. Not only that, but the opponent will be put to shame or even brought to a place of experiencing shame in his conscience, which may serve to lead him to faith in Christ. In other words, Paul is saying that young men who live this way provide a powerful apologetic that can show forth the credibility of the Christian faith and actually serve to influence enemies of Christ toward Christ in saving faith. I'm, I'm so blessed as a pastor to say that we have many such wonderful young men here at Cornerstone who are exactly like what Paul describes here. Men who are serious about their faith, men who love their wives and their children and who are serious about leading their families in the ways of Christ. Our church is full of such young men, and we are also blessed with many serious-minded single men like this as well. And my heart is blessed on every thought of these dear brothers. I had a young man call me several years ago who was uh, just graduating from UCLA, I believe it was, and he was trying to choose between four medical schools that he had the opportunity to become a student at. But before he made his choice among those four medical schools, he researched churches in the vicinity of each of these schools. And he made it his goal to find a church first and then to let his choice of a church determine the medical school that he would attend. And you should have heard this young man as he interviewed me about Cornerstone. 
he asked me a number of questions. He wanted to know if he would be sufficiently discipled here at Cornerstone. He wanted to make sure that he would not just uh, be allowed to just attend and get lost in the crowd. He wanted to know about our small groups and how we do community here at Cornerstone. He wanted to know what our doctrine was. He wanted to know if we would be willing to exercise church discipline on him if he was found to be an unrepentant sin. I did my best to answer the questions that he was asking me. And thankfully, he ended up choosing Cornerstone, which then determined the medical school that he would attend. And he was a great blessing to our church during the years that he was here. You know, it's easy nowadays to make fun of millennials, but many of the single and married young men that we have at Cornerstone do not fit that stereotypical mold at all. And they encourage me more than I can say and give me so much hope for the future of the Church of Jesus Christ. We value such young men and cherish the opportunity to journey with them. And the testimony of Cornerstone Fellowship Bible Church is all the richer because of these young men. We have worked through these verses verses one through eight rather quickly this morning, leaving, I think, a lot unsaid. Uh, but we're going to stop here for today and we'll be sweeping back through these verses the next time and we'll try to do justice to what Paul is saying here and in the coming verses. But we have seen in our passage today what God wants from older men what he wants from older and younger women in the church and what he wants from younger men in the church in order to enhance our witness for Christ. And just from what we've learned so far today, if we live the way that Paul prescribes here, we will accomplish two things. Number one, we will match the sound doctrine that we say that we believe. And number two, we will bring honor to the word of God during a time when many people are picking up their Bible and giving it a closer look. That's what we want. We want to bring honor to God's word to endear people to the cause of Jesus Christ through the lives that we lead, that people might take a closer look at the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel, and might be led to faith in him. And you know what? The motivation for all of this is going to be delivered to us by Paul beginning in verse 11. Beginning in verse 11, let me just read this to you. Paul, after giving all of these guidelines, he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. We will study this passage in the coming weeks, but I read it now because this is our motivation. And Paul is saying that if we want the world to see the beauty of this salvation through Jesus Christ, then we can serve that end by living the kind of lives that Paul describes for us in our passage today. In the early 1920s, an Indian philosopher observed the life of Christians and he had read about Jesus Christ and the Bible, but he also watched the way Christians live and and he said these words, he says, Jesus is ideal and wonderful, but you Christians, you are not like him. Well, may God help us to be more like Jesus and ready to repent 
humbly when we do fall short. And may the lives that we lead as Christians bring honor to God's word and point people evermore to Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and who is the one whom their soul most needs. We can only do that through the enabling that God gives to us. So let's pray and ask God to help us to do this in the days to come. Our Heavenly Father, we admit how unlike Jesus we are. How much we fall short. In fact, we are Christians because we recognized through your grace, our spiritual poverty and how unlike Jesus we are. And that's why we came to Jesus because we needed him to save us from what we were and to make us into something new. So help us to be humble and acknowledging where we fall short, but let us, Lord, not make excuses for ourselves either. You make it real clear in this passage what it is that you want us to be as older men and older and younger women and as younger men. And you would only tell us to be the ways described here if, in fact, you fully intend to give us all of the provision that we need to help us to be what you call us to be. And so we thank you for that provision and ask, Lord, that you would empower us through the truth of your word to live up to what we have learned from this passage. And as we've already seen in this passage, Lord, we need to help each other, older women helping younger women and younger women helping older women. Younger men in this passage needed Titus to come alongside of them and to urge them and exhort them. We all need each other. We need the example of older men, younger men, older and younger women, and all of us together praying for each other, supporting each other in our care groups and other ministry venues, Lord, to be what it is that you've called us to be so that a light could issue forth from this church that would serve to Point the way to Jesus during a time like we find ourselves in right now where there are many people who are hurting, who are fearful, who are asking deep questions and what they desperately need to hear is the truth of your word and what they desperately need to see is Christians speaking the truth of your word who actually live like they believe what they're saying. And where they see lives being lived by Christians that is different than what they see in the world. Help us to do this, Lord, not for our glory, but for your glory and for your glory alone. And we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.